from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Measured Thoughts on Business Radio. Powered by the Wharton School. Here's your host, David Reepstein. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Measured Thoughts with Dave Reepstein on Business Radio. Powered by the Wharton School. I'm Dave Reepstein and I'm joining you here on Sirius XM Channel 111, which I do every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern and replayed throughout the week. And I'm joined in the studio once again with Sunil Betty. Sunil, welcome. Glad to have you back here again. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Dave. Sunil's a rising doctoral student who is uh, thriving in our program here and works very closely with me. And, and Sunil, I'm very impressed by all the work that you do. And we just got done teaching. I was I was teaching my course, and you were carrying all the weight. You oh, know? No, and, not true. It was a very intense course. It was an intense course. We went through the weekend, and um, we did that with 140 students, and it was a uh, pretty interesting uh, process to go through. It was through. a lot of fun. Yeah. I think they learned a lot, and they enjoyed it. It, it. When you're having fun, I think you learn a little bit more, so that always, uh, that always helps indeed. Um, big week, because right after class, I rushed from here, as you know, mm-hmm. and I jumped on a train, and I headed down to Washington for some meetings I had on Saturday night and on Sunday. And, um, boy, I got down to Washington. Oh, first of all, on the train, who sat next to me on the train was a student that was in the class. Oh, really? Yeah, so I was sort of surprised to see that. You're supposed to still be taking in all that knowledge and not rushing off, but I was rushing off. Anyhow, I got down to Washington, and Washington was just so crowded. And it was so crowded because of the March. March for Life. And absolutely. so the March for Life and... There were T-shirts everywhere, but there were people everywhere. I wondered why it was so difficult for me to get a hotel when I was down there. <laughs> and it was really, really, really crowded. And so it's, it's interesting. Since this is a program where we talk about all sorts of things, but we also talk about marketing. Absolutely. It, is there any relationship between what's going on with March for Life and any marketing activities that are going well, on? I think it's really interesting to see what how the market has been responding to, you know, whether it's gun violence, gun lobbying, especially the march of the March for Life. There are a lot of companies that are self-regulating themselves and, and you know, saying that they're not going to sell certain types of guns. I think Dick's Sporting Goods has said they're not going to sell um, assault, assault rifles. Right, right, YouTube right. has said that they're not going to link. They did? To, uh, uh, yeah, they're not going to link to any website that sells guns or distributes guns. And so it's pretty interesting that I think some of these companies are taking political stands. So that's funny because so much of the news that's on the air is sort of all this March for Life and are we going to be able to have an impact on uh, legislation. Mm. And it's it's fascinating to see what it is that's going on with the companies that themselves are making changes. Absolutely. So not waiting for legislation, you know, the legislation uh, certainly in D.C. has been sort of you know, paralyzed by all the, you know, the different camps that are there. And so it turns out the companies are taking some of the lead, which is absolutely fascinating, very intriguing to see. Uh, So we'll see what the impact of that's going to be. Maybe we'll get a chance to talk about that a little bit later in the second half of the program. Absolutely. Because the second half of the program today, what it is we're going to do is we're just going to open the areas up for anybody that has any questions, wants to call in and ask anything that's in any way related to marketing, uh, marketing metrics, and now anything that's related to the marketing surrounding March for Life. Mm-hmm. And so that'll be interesting to see. I've, I've got to mention also this past weekend, it was um, the March Madness. It was. Speaking of marches, Speaking it's, of marches. it's March Madness. And sure enough, we have... Um, 
we we have uh, you know March Madness and two of my teams are two of the four, and actually two of your teams, three of the teams are three of the four. Which ones are those? Dave? And and so we have the Cinderella team of Loyola, but my daughter went to University of Michigan, so I have to have a little bit of so uh, of one. a warm spot for University of Michigan, particularly given how much tuition I paid for my daughter to go to <laughs> University of Michigan. Um, I went to the University of Kansas. You're a big and, Kansas fan. And by the way, this is radio, but you can tell everybody what I'm wearing right now. He is wearing a Jayhawk shirt from 2002, I will add. Well, okay. So I keep my T-shirts for a while. <laughs> but, but the good news is it still fits me. It does. And, it looks good. And so so that's good. So I'm a big Jayhawks fan, and so rock chalk. Um, but also, I live less than a couple miles away from Villanova. And so I've got Villanova playing Kansas, and then I got Michigan playing Lola. Yeah. And so, you know, watch Lola win the whole thing. And you know, I've got three out of four, but that's going to happen. Very exciting stuff. But in the first part of this program, we have Aaron Shapiro, who is the founder and CEO of Huge, which is really big. It's super big. Super big. Huge. Huge is super big. So we've got to find out what Huge is all about. He is the founder and CEO of Huge. We're going to spend some time talking with him and finding out what it is that Huge does and how it is that Aaron's been trying to use his marketing metrics to help all these various different companies. If at any time you want to give us a call, you can give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Let me remind our audience, you're listening to Measured Thoughts with Dave Reepstein on Sirius XM 111. Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. And you can give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And you can even follow us on Twitter at biz, that's B-I-Z Radio 111. But let's get started with Aaron. Aaron, welcome. Glad to have you on the program. Thanks for having me. So uh, not everybody has heard the name Huge because it's not necessarily a consumer brand. So I've got, right. to, I've got to find out um, about Huge, but let's start with a little bit of your background. So tell me some of your background, please. So I've been involved in technology and marketing since the beginning of the Internet back in the early 90s. I started uh, two different companies. The first was an email marketing company called Silver Pop Systems that eventually got sold to IBM. And, uh, and then in the mid-2000s, I started Huge, uh, which is a full-service digital agency. So we do digital marketing for uh, lots of different companies, firms like, um, firms like Nike or Verizon. And we really help them through their whole strategy of how they can be successful using digital to market on the Internet. So first of all, I'm going to say I've, I've been to your site and been looking all through your site, and you've got an amazing, amazing list of clients and so you just uh, mentioned a couple of them there. And so you're a digital marketing agency. What what what's that mean? What what is really involved in doing digital marketing? Well, there are a few different types of things that we do. The biggest thing is help companies transform their business to be successful in the digital economy. If you think about most companies, like big successful firms, like like the Comcast or Chase or American Express. These became massively successful companies before the Internet even existed. And now that the Internet is here, they have to market and do business in a totally different way. Everything from thinking about how they can sell their products over the Internet to how they market using social media and mobile. So it's a very different way in which they go about their business. And we help them do all of these things to be successful. 
So it's everything from strategy to marketing campaigns to uh, thinking about their websites, their mobile apps, emerging technologies like Alexa. And, and the big thing that I'm sure you'll take um, heart about is that increasingly all of this is powered with data because the Internet more and more is this giant data machine that's driving all of these marketers' different initiatives. So you do warm my heart every time you say data, so keep that up. But, <laughs> but, but I, I will say that, um, you know, when I, I said you're a digital marketing agency, what immediately comes to my mind is thinking about an ad agency and doing digital advertising. But I heard you talk about it much more than that. So you said we're helping them with their strategy. So are you a digital consulting firm in part? Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'll give you an example of that. I'll give you two examples. So first example is um, Hulu, you know, that a lot of you, I'm sure, use. Yes. They, they decided they had to change their product to be much more um, in tune with the times and better compete with, ne with Netflix. So they hired us to design what the new Hulu looks like. Well, well, well wait a minute. Hulu started as a digital company, didn't they? That's right. They so they, but I mean, did they have to change what they were doing? Well, in their case, they didn't have to change, but they had to evolve because they had to compete against against Netflix, which is a, obviously a formidable competitor. And part of that is always staying in tune with how people are using the internet and how they're going to consume uh, content and video. So what our work with them was to figure out what should a new Hulu experience be like that consumers will really fall in love with and will cause them to sign up for Hulu and, and watch more video and content. So the whole look and feel of Hulu and how that's designed was all done by our company. So it's that whole full experience. So, uh, so actually, one you know, we could use an example. Hulu it was a client of yours, but you could also use as an example what Netflix had to do. And I take uh -huh. it Netflix was not one of your clients, but Hulu was a digital company. Hulu stayed a digital company. They just had to continue to migrate, whereas right. Netflix had to transform what their whole business was. Because right. if you think about what they, they started as, they had you know, VHS tapes and they were sending them out. Yep. And yep. Then, then, then they went to DVDs and were sending those out. But it was a, a mail, you know, we're going to be using FedEx, we're going to get things out to you. And then they moved to streaming, and now they're just like totally, you know, the whole digital experience. So they've gone through a transformation, and that's the type of thing that you would help a company with? Yes, absolutely. And, and, and you think about that transformation. Every company has to go through that kind of shift, whether they're a firm that started with the Internet or not. There's, because technology is changing so rapidly, every company has to rethink their business. And that's what the core of the kind of work that we do at Huge. And it's a lot of what I personally love is that we see the inside of so many companies and learn about their businesses and how to evolve them to be successful in the modern economy. Uh, okay. And, and you also, you know, well, actually, I would think it's a harder sell to take a company that's not digital and get them to migrate to becoming digital than it is to take somebody like Hulu, who was a digital company, and just sort of upgrading and, and transforming some with the times. That's true, but the pressure is, is just as big for all of these companies. There's not a single new CMO or CMO where the top of their agenda is to think about how they're going to how they're going to succeed. I mean, underlying every almost I, I can't think of a single company where their underlying fear is you know the Amazon effect. How are they going to be? How are they going to stay in business for the next ten years and be relevant? How are they compete against Amazon? How will they be relevant against Google? Like it or not, digital is forcing all these big sectors to converge. 
and everybody has to rethink their business. So it's a time of, of massive change and uncertainty for so many companies. So since you just mentioned the Amazon effect, it's, it's hard for us in this era not to think about the Amazon effect on Toys R Us. Mm-hmm. And um, was the problem that Toys R Us had, is, is one of the problems anyhow, is that they did not transform themselves fast enough and, and sufficiently to, yeah, uh, to compete? Yeah, to- Toys R Us is a, is a textbook example of, of the challenge that so many companies have. You know, they're selling a, a commodity product, which is the perfect kind of product for Amazon to destroy. And for the executives of, of Toys R Us, they have to say, well, how are we going to succeed against a company like Amazon? And Toys R Us wasn't able to deliver, unfortunately. But the companies that do are the ones that embrace a digital-first approach and think about retailing in a very different way. You could think about there's a lot of modern e-commerce companies that have started to come about, firms like Warbly Parker for eyeglasses, for example, sure. or Dollar Shave Club for razors that got sold to P&J, where they're thinking about um, e-commerce and D2C in very, very new ways. And those are the companies that are able to compete and win against Amazon. And that's a very different way that companies have to think about their business. Do you help companies uh, turn and go the other direction? Since you mentioned Warby Parker, Warby Parker started exclusively online. And now what it is they're doing is is also they've opened up some stores. Amazon started exclusively online. And now what they've done is start getting into the bricks and mortar as well. Do you help sort of? basically, you know, strategize about, you know, the balance between those two? Yeah, so what what you're talking about is exactly where the future of the Internet is going, which is that the Internet is not just this thing locked in a screen. Increasingly, the Internet is everywhere. And so what retailers are often doing is embracing this, what's called omni-channel, the idea that you have a store and an e-commerce website, it may be mobile, and they all connect together so that everything talks to each other, so that it's frictionless when you go from the website to the store and back, they, they know who you are and everything kind of works perfectly. And that's where the future of retailing is going. I, I can give you a, a concrete example that's kind of fun. So w- within Huge, uh, have, Is this going to be a bricks and mortar one since you said it's a concrete example? Yes, it is. Very, very good. <laughs> <laughs> you got the pun. <laughs> okay, there we go. <laughs> so, so, uh, so, so we, have, we have an office in Atlanta. Huge has, about, Huge has 12 offices around the world. And one of them is in Atlanta. And about two years ago, they decided to create a coffee shop. So it's a normal, like, Starbucks-like coffee shop right on Peachtree that we run at Huge. It's available to the public. Anyone can go in and get coffee. But the thing that's interesting about it is, is that while it looks like a normal coffee shop, it's fully powered by digital. So, for example, if I'm in my car driving to work, then um, the mobile app will detect that, hey, this person's a regular customer and they're getting close to work. And then they'll automatically place my regular coffee order to the coffee shop so with, without the person having to do anything. So then as soon as that individual walks in, the, um, the order is ready for them automatically. It was tr- transmitted automatically. The barista has a notification on their Apple Watch saying when they have to make the coffee. And then it's available, and the person walks right in and takes it right away without having to pay or do anything. And all the payment happens behind the scenes, completely frictionless. And, and now we did it as kind of an experiment to show where retail's going, but that's the kind of really far-out retail stuff that's becoming more and more the norm, and that's, that's the future of how people are going to shop. This connectivity that data is used to connect di- the digital and physical world um, into these kind of completely frictionless environments that's all about 
serving users without them even realizing it. So Sunil's sitting here, and he doesn't realize we're on the radio, and no one can recognize the facial expressions he's making. So I'm going to share them, which is his face is sort of uh, puzzled as you're giving this example. I love the example, although I wonder how much... You know, the coffee is poured and the guy doesn't stop in because, you know, there was sort of a change in the schedule or whatever. But what was the expression about Sunil? Well, well, I think, Aaron, I think this is it's pretty cool what what you're doing. I I guess for me, you know, this notion of 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 not not creating any friction uh, in between, you know, the consumer and the consumer experience. I, I, I get the feeling that at some point and you guys do a lot of branding at some point the notion of of branding is important because you know consumers are interfacing with the company that there is some value uh, in seeing an employee seeing how employees work and i understand this notion of keeping it frictionless but i wonder how you balance that um with you know constantly interacting making sure that the consumer is interacting with the company so let me jump in with the response and then Aaron i want you to do it but i'm looking at it and i'm saying um boy i, I you know the worst part going to the coffee shop is waiting and if, you know, and I, I pop in and they go, hey, Dave, here's your coffee. And they hand it to me. Um, that's just perfect. And that's a positive interaction. Mm-hmm. And the and the downside part is, is not there. Um, so, Aaron, did you have a response to Sunil? Yeah. So the, um, um, yeah, so the point that you're making about that, that surprise and delight, that to me, that's great branding. And that's what companies are trying to go after. So what we're seeing more and more in this world, this data-driven world, is that, it's less about the product that you sell to a customer, but about the brand is the overall service that you provide. And if that service is frictionless and helpful and easy to use, it just understands what you want, then that's going to be a great brand. I mean, for example, the, the company I always love, I know everyone talks about Uber, especially if you think about Uber before all the scandals. What I find amazing about Uber is like, what, 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 exact, what service did Uber really offer? Uh, like, you could always get a taxi before, especially I live in New York. I can raise my hand and get a taxi anytime I want. But just by making it a little bit frictionless and easier, just by hitting a button, then that creates $60 billion in revenue a year. It's all about using data to make a very simple service. And that's more and more where the future of branding and where marketers have to evolve their business towards. You just said data, and you uh, warmed my heart again. But first, I'm going to remind people that you're listening to Measure Thoughts with Dave Reepstein on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. And we are currently speaking with Aaron Shapiro, who's the founder and CEO of HUGE. And you can give us a call and speak with Aaron or with us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's one 844 Nine four two seven eight six six. So, Aaron, uh, you were just talking about that sort of use of the data, and so walk us through an example of how you use that data. I guess you, you maybe even the coffee example you were just talking about. We've got the data. We know that Dave comes in usually right uh, between you know seven and seven fifteen. Uh, Sunil comes in between uh, between ten and ten fifteen. Sometimes eleven. Sometimes eleven. Sometimes, sometimes eleven. Uh, but and and you know that Dave gets a decaf americano. But that's the data that you're talking about, right? That's the data. But there's another. All that data is true. But there's another piece of data we have as well, which is we know through GPS uh, how soon that where that person is on the way to work. We know how much traffic there is on the route that they're taking. So we know just the right time to place that order where, where we know that when the person does show up, we can predict when they're going to arrive and that the coffee will be ready for them. And 
We also know the frequency in which they regularly place orders, so that if it turns out that we have a lot of false orders, then we can dial it back over time. And it's this kind of data collection that more and more companies are doing to create incredibly useful services. I can give you another example. One of our clients is Under Armour. And Under Armour has uh, different fitness apps that they've made or acquired. And what's interesting about the fitness app is that it, it, it looks at your athletic performance, and based on that, it can build a profile of what you're like as an athlete, and then it recommends specific Under Armour gear that will help optimize your athletic performance. And that's, a, that's something that no company can do unless you're really unless that company is plugged into understanding that those people's athletic fitness and performance and all the data they're getting from fitness apps so, and that kind of intelligent use of information to service people better is more and more where the marketing world is going so that has to come through the um, my Fitbit or come through exactly. my, uh, and so that information is part of what it is that's right so Under Armour has a fitness app that's very popular and so as people use that to help measure their running and compete against other people, that same app is learning the right kind of gear that's going to help push their performance further. So one of the, one of the topics that I've got to bring up right now that just seems to be so relevant in this era is thinking about the creepiness of all the data. All the data. Mm -hmm. And so you know, with the latest revelation about Cambridge Analytics and the information that happens to be available, you're talking about. I, I'm. I know where you are. I know. I'm watching your your car getting closer. I know what it is that you drink. I. I also know your credit card, so you don't have to pay, uh, with cash. Which, by the way, I think is another thing that people really like about Uber, is you don't have to reach for a credit card or anything. It's already in the system. Yep. Um. So. How are you trying to help companies balance that creepiness, too much information is out there, and being able to capitalize with, uh, with what customers might be responsive to? Yeah, so the thing that we consistently find is that companies will, will, consumers will give up their privacy provided they're getting really, really good utility for it. Now, certainly, as we've learned from the Cambridge Analytics scandal, that this data can be misused and, under, and really underscores the urgency of companies to responsibly manage data. But if companies do responsibly manage data, the benefits that consumers get from the utility for that is, is really, really big. And that's what, that's what companies have to balance, is that if they provide value, they're going to be okay. And they have to be responsible. They can't have, they can't have Cambridge Analytical problems. They can't use data without people's consent, all the ways in which data can be abused. But responsibly done, that's really the future of where the Internet is going. For example, for example, the other, you know, a few weeks ago was Valentine's Day. And so I decided for my... Now for you tell me. I, now you remind me. I can't believe it. Okay. I know. We missed it. We yeah, missed it. Well, I'm tech, right? Yeah. So I'm going to order flowers for my wife with Alexa. So I so I went. So I said, Alexa, order you know, order me a dozen roses. Or, no, I didn't even say. That. I just said, order flat, order my wife flowers for Valentine's. That was it. And Alexa just figured out right away all all the things that I needed. Right? It said, you know, hey, a dozen roses are available at this price at this location. Say yes to buy it. And and it was just this completely elegant thing. Now that's the kind of stuff that consumers want. But if you think about it, Alexa and Amazon had to have a ton of data to make that frictionless transaction come to life. 
And I'm willing to do that because it's so much. E- it's because of the convenience that Alexa gives me. That's the trade-off that consumers are willing to make, and that's what that's where the world is going. No, I, I I love it, and I personally believe there's great value I receive when companies have my data. But I think your point, which I totally endorse, is customers have got to find that benefit, and and the customers are going to see me walk into the coffee shop and them saying, "Hi, Dave. Here's your coffee," and them going. Why didn't I get that? And recognizing that they haven't been able to capitalize on it because they've held their data too close to the vest. It's a magical thing. I mean, the other day I was at I was at Four Seasons Hotel, and I walked in and they said, "Hello, Mr. Shapiro," and I know that it's you know the data they have on me and all that kind of stuff because I'm not by no means. In fact, I'd never even been to that hotel before, but. The, the feeling that it gets me, like, I can't help but feel good that I had that personal touch and connection. Like, it, it was great. It was a great marketing brandy touch, all driven by data. Certainly, it could have been done in a very creepy way. But the way they did it was so polished and so service-oriented that it made me feel good. And it made me like the hotel more. And I, even though I'm a marketer, I knew how they were doing it, that they had some, you know, app that they were monitoring already. So it wasn't even like they really knew who I was. But it still made me feel good. Uh, uh, yeah, so I, I continue to be a big believer of added value to consumers because of what it is that one knows. Uh, I am curious if anybody in the audience happens to think that uh, – and examples of how they appreciate their data being used or or to the contrary uh, on that. I'm trying to think about is this something that big companies can do and only big companies or, or, or is it possible – and and I know you work with large clients, but do you do any work with small clients as well? And do you have to be a big company to take advantage of the data? It's a question I get asked all the time. Well, the best example for a small company would be my mom. So my mom is a dentist. She is the most overpaid and overqualified consultant uh, <laughs> doing her part-time work. Right? <laughs> and uh, what I'm continuing to – and my mom is a definition of low-tech. So if she can do it, then anyone can do it. But what's truly amazing when I look at her dental practice is literally 90% of her business now comes from the Internet. And it's all, it's all things that anybody can do. She's doing things like search optimization. She's doing, uh, she has a basic database to remember people's emails, to remember people's birthdays. So I get a happy birthday email you know, when, it's, when it's my birthday rolling around. Um, setting up regular reminders for when your checkups have to come, when your six-month checkup is due, all the kind of blocking and tackling. And it wasn't that hard for her to set up, and it, and it, and it, and it works. So if she can have it work, anyone can do it. It's all about finding simple things, executing them well, and then picking the next thing to, to try. Yeah. Um, I think that's a great example. I often talk about my florist who just had it all on index cards, and it was my local you know neighborhood florist, and... You know, she would call me up and say, it's your mom's birthday uh, mm-hmm. coming up next week. Do you want to send cards? And that, that was sort of what preceded the Internet and uh, small businesses doing it. And so you, I, I'm a big believer that you don't have to be an enormous company to, uh, to take advantage of the data. And, That's and, right. And, 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 and the other thing is that, that. And Facebook and Google have made it so easy for advertisers. You, could, you, know, you look at Facebook, you slap down your credit card. You can pick exactly who you want to target, your location, what their interests are, and then ads start to appear. Same thing with Google. Same thing with some of the other services as well. So it's an easy thing to try. And the other great thing about the Internet is because there's so much data, you can track the performance. You can see right away if your investment works. 
and hey, if $50 works, then let's try 500 and you build up from there. So, it's, Aaron, it's pretty amazing. you just brought up um, you know, a point that I wanted to talk about, which is you, know, you can see how your advertisement works. And, and I guess given that you guys use so much data at Huge and you're very data-driven and consumer-oriented driven, does that change um, how you think about measuring the success of your campaigns? Has it become easier? Uh, has it changed just on which metrics you focus on? So I wonder if you could talk us through a little bit of that. Sure. So uh, all, all of advertising, to your point, has changed dramatically because of data. And the biggest thing that it's done is that is two things. First, everything is measure is measurable, and increasingly, advertising is becoming automated. So in terms of measurement, we track everything. When a campaign r- rolls out, we can see what's working and what's not, and we can use basic metrics like how many people click on the ad but we can also get more sophisticated and tie the ads to specific metrics that are unique to that company. So, for example, if I'm a telecommunications company, I might care about total connects, meaning the number of people who will connect to my service and subscribe. That's very different from, say, a credit card company that might care about total money people spend on a credit card. And you can measure all of these things true, so you can track every ad and how well it converts to the bottom line. So very, very powerful stuff. But what's truly cutting edge about advertising today is how much the combination of data and machine learning and AI has changed the ad business. And what's happening now is that machine learning algorithms will actually change both where the placement is made and the actual, and the actual ad itself based on how the machine learning learns and how it performs against different demographic groups. So we no longer, when you look at banner ads, for many campaigns, we no longer produce a single banner campaign that gets put out there. We actually program a, a machine learning algorithm that will automatically change the creative over time based on the data that it's learning for what people react to which ads. And then the ad automatically changes. So the ad that you get might be different than the ad Mary gets down the street. And it's all optimized over time based on the data that we know about you. So and that some, has a dramatic some, improvement on, on the efficacy of the campaigns. So some of that is automated over time as you learn, but but some of it is that Sunil is different than Dave. That's and, right. And, and, and so happening. that's right. So some of it is and, and so does that learning happen across all of the population or are you doing it for individuals or segments of individuals? How how does that really work? It tends to be for, for both overall as well as for segments of individuals. Usually, a single, usually you don't want a single individual to see a single ad more than a few times because then they'll get fatigued and won't pay attention. No, but, but, when, but, but, a, but what I'm thinking about when I say for a single person, it might be I'm not going to keep showing them the same ad. But I, I notice that Sunil always re- responds to uh, price. And so mm-hmm. when I lower the price, he keeps doing it. So I'll do it with different products and so forth, but I'll be offering him some price. Or well, the, well, the biggest thing, the biggest personalized thing you'll see, and, and you can see this when you when you browse the web yourself, is go to an e-commerce website, uh, like anyone, like from Amazon to Pottery Barn or whatnot, and then now start leaving and start browsing around the web to other sites. You'll see that ads start to follow you from that same e-commerce company, right? Like you go to a right. furniture no, site, that's all of a right. sudden. Right, chairs are falling over the internet. That's all because they're targeting you in a very similar way. They're seeing that you've been to certain sites, so you're more likely to click on similar ads. Um, you know, it's called retargeting. So those kind of things are happening a lot, a lot too. 
And the internet uh, that you see and the internet I see are all very different because more and more they're all getting personalized to their individual and based on their preferences. Yeah, and are you measuring how that how that efficiency is uh, is growing? Yeah, so that's all getting measurement measured, and and we, and we can see that when we produce di- dynamically created ads that are machine learning driven compared to normal ads, we can get about a forty percent improvement in ad effectiveness because of the degree of targeting and optimization we can do. So it's it's pretty powerful stuff. No, that's absolutely amazing. Are we going to get to a stage where? It really isn't the creativity of the ad, but it's the creativity of the algorithm that uh, that, that we're going to be competing on. Um, definitely, that, that's where the world is going. There'll always be creativity in advertising, but the creativity is often around a framework of how the ad is structured, and then you say, okay, here's the general ad, and then it can change in these 50 different ways, and then the machine learning algorithm starts to figure it out. We did, a, for example, we did a landing page for an e-commerce company, a website, just a web page, where that was selling a product. 600 different versions of that page were tested in market to see just the right combination that got the best conversion results. And once we found the best one, then then it was optimized by individual and by segment to get the better, better, and better performance. Wow. Uh, that's more and more where the world is going. You can see that on prices as well. You can see this on Amazon, where the price that I see is different than the price that you see, and the price will change over time as well. And that's all because of these dynamic algorithms that are in place. Yeah, and, and I think we're going to see more and more of that happening. I'm, I'm curious, do we find that the money is leaning towards those things that we can measure? And, and and so you were talking about sort of the merging of um, bricks and mortar with online businesses. I'm trying to think about, you know, I'm doing some advertising and I'm doing some, you know, in billboards and some in traditional advertising and some online. The ones online are easier for me to measure. And, well, and it may be that the others are more effective, but I can't measure it quite as easily. And so I'm going to migrate more of my spending to the online well, we're seeing that you can. What we're seeing is that advertising is generally dividing into two into two types. There's one type that, that's called a performance-based media, which is just jargon for saying that we can measure it very carefully and exactly track that ad to a, someone buying something. Um, Google Google search ads are a good example of that. And then the other type, which is more brand advertising, where you're getting the word out and you have awareness, like a TV spot, but you can't really tell what the exact results are. They're both very valid types of advertising, but they serve different purposes, and they're measured in different ways. So more and more advertisers will maximize the performance spend, meaning I'll I'll keep on spending money so that until that last dollar doesn't give me a return, because I can measure every dollar I put in and how much I get out. And then the brand, and then the rest of it will go to branding, and that one is much more of a soft sell, where we don't quite know what works and what doesn't work, but we can do general uh, studies over time to see what consumer perception is like and what awareness is like that'll give me a rough indication of how well those ads work. Uh, the, advert- the measurement is more sophisticated than you would think, but it's still a bit of a guess to know what's really working and not sure. in, for the more brand marketing. Aaron, fascinating business. I've got to tell you, I am very, very impressed with what it is that uh, you're doing. It's huge. Thank you. And, uh, and, and congratulations to you. Thanks, thanks so much for, uh, for joining us. Uh, Please do stay with us, everyone. We're going to need to take a break, but uh, when we get back, we're going to be taking your calls on anything marketing, branding, metrics related. 
or anything to do with the march and uh, for life that we just saw this past weekend and how it might be incorporated into what businesses are doing. So if you want to join the conversation, give us a call at 1-844-WARDEN. That's 1-844-942-7866 or send us an email at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. This is Business Radio powered by the Wharton School on SiriusXM 111.